Well, good afternoon and welcome to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, coming to you from the Coming Home Network International Studios in Central Ohio, but we're coming to you over EWTN Radio, and what a great privilege that is. On this program, the program has changed over the years, but what we're doing now I'm very excited about, and that is that this program has a little more of a direct connect to the Journey Home program. Often on the Journey Home, when I have the guest give their reasons for coming home to the Catholic faith, often, of course, they allude to Scripture, but there's not a lot of time on the Monday night program to open our Bibles and let's look at them. And so the uh, the Deep in Scripture program now allows us, since I have the guest in the studio, we've just done the journey home, which those of you may have seen Monday night, and if you haven't seen it, you can go to EWTN and, um, and see the uh, reruns either on television or listen to it on radio or go to the website, and it's amazing the uh, capabilities today. But it gives a chance for us to sit down with the guest and say, okay, let's look at Scripture. And what? let's look at Scripture, and maybe the verses you never saw, or maybe the verses that you're starting to see the way they were intended to be seen through the teacher of the church. And so that's what we're doing today. And our guest today is Brent Stubbs, former Pentecostal. And Brent, welcome to Deep in Scripture. Thank you, Marcus. My it's, pleasure. It, it, it's, it's good to, to have you here. Um, you've come a long way up from from Florida. Um, you're, you were probably expecting that the weather here would be a little cooler. <laughs> it may well, not be. It's slightly less humid. Uh, beautiful country here, though. I feel really fortunate to be able to. I wish I could spend more time. I, I want to read a book and just be in the countryside here. Yeah, here we are. Our studios are essentially in the middle of a big cornfield. Oh, it's wonderful. <laughs> and my little farm is only about seven miles away. I have to go home and feed a pig this afternoon. But <laughs> uh, but it's great to have you here. And just those of you that didn't hear Monday night's program, Brent is a former licensed minister in the International Pentecostal Holiness Church after finishing college at Oral Roberts University with a degree in theological historical studies. He taught Bible courses for three and a half years in various high schools in the United States. He's also had the opportunity to lecture at the college level in philosophy of religion and the theology of St. Augustine. Brent studied graduate philosophy at the University of Dallas and holds a master's in business administration. Five years ago, he began a journey to resolve some of the tensions in his faith and to ultimately give his children a safe place to follow Christ. On November twenty second, 2008, he and his wife received into full communion with the Catholic Church on the Feast of Christ the King. He talks about the Catholic faith and his journey at, and this is a website you may want to write down, www.almostnotcatholic.com. Talk about the title of that, Brent. Well, you know, it ultimately points to, if we look at the things that we do in our life, I mean, you can't, you know, I almost went to the moon. You know, <laughs> what is that? If I said I was almost something, what is it? You know, how do you verify that? But, but you know, we look back in our life, we can see where we, we almost responded to Christ, or we almost, I should say, not responded to Christ. And so I, I started the blog in this sense because by the time I started, you know, wanting to write about the Catholic faith, the, I was done. I was gonna, I was going to be Catholic. So in some sense, I was almost not Catholic. You know, the journey was done, and yeah. anybody wanted to hear about it, they were just going to have to get uh, get get the the post Tiber swim well, story. <laughs> we want don't want to go through your whole journey now because you had a chance to at least go through the nutshell of it on uh, Monday night. But one of the key emphases of this program is that there's a problem with sola scriptura, and we've got to make sure that we interpret this wonderful, infallible, inspired Word of God, sacred Scripture, within the mind of the teacher through which we received it. Mm. And I think to a certain extent that was a part of your journey is discovering that. Sure. And maybe talk just a second why, for you, it has been even practically important in the interpretation of the Bible to see it through the eyes of the church. You know, St. Paul talks about Scripture as being difficult, being hard. Um, and if you've spent any time reading the Bible, any you know, yeah. besides just cursory reading and glossing it, you'll know this is not—it's not an easy book. Uh, you know, just looking at the New Testament, we have narrative, we have 
different styles. We have people who are, had you know little or no Greek training like St. Mark to someone who, with advanced Greek training. So the words are vastly different. Uh, you know how so so when you you know if you compare Romans if you just look at the history of exegesis of Romans compared to James <laughs> the book of James some drastically different theologies are the byproduct of of that that exercise of those exercises so uh, something had to give and 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 you know if we, one of the things that all Christians believe if you're you know Protestant or not is you know that God's a God of truth Jesus is the way the truth and the life, and we know, you know, truth isn't two propositions that absolutely positively contradict to each other, or they can't be. Uh, there's, there's no way to properly come to terms with. Well, if this is true, this this really can't be true too. Yeah. And uh, that that you know, Christ was one who, when he taught, they recognized as one teaching with authority. So it would make sense that you know, subsequently, we as Christians, or the you know, now as a Catholic, I can say the Church teaches in very much that same spirit of, 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 a t- of a teacher with authority, not just as, as an opinion maker. Shape A cannot be a square and a circle at the same time, right? Right, exactly. It, they just, it, it can't be. If something, looks like a, if something is a square and a circle at the same time, we've got to figure out what's something wrong with this picture. Right. It's, it's not, yeah, perseverance of the saints, eternal security, or not eternal security, not perseverance of the saints. Yeah. Okay. Sorry, that's... No, sometimes there are mysteries. Mm-hmm. And it, what it does, it doesn't say that two facts are... One of the facts has to be wrong. It's that then we recognize that our human capabilities... Mm. So the fact that a shape is either a square or a circle is not an issue about our human incapabilities. But on the other hand, the sovereignty of God and the freedom of man's will, well, they can be, for some people, contradictory. So we end up with the Calvinist angle or the Wesleyan angle. We end up with the solutions to that. Or we can say, in our human condition, it's impossible for us fully to understand what the sovereignty of God means or even what the freedom of man means because of our own sinful condition. So we leave that as a mystery. It's both true. We don't necessarily know how they fit. But I am sure that as an international Pentecostal holiness church pastor, you had it all figured out. Well, you know, and to be fair, I, you know, I wasn't a pastor, um, you know, more, more or less a preacher. And I want to make that just so I don't offend anybody who might be listening to this that comes from that, that particular that, denomination, that tradition. Um, but... You know, no, I don't think so. I don't. And think I wasn't so. really being. You and I were joking in that. I think the point was that our our good brothers out there in, in these different denominations, hard as a serious, sincere as a day is long, right? And they want to serve Jesus, and they're preaching scriptures. I mean, they're doing the best they can. They yes. may not realize some of the contradictions that are out there, and and once you do, then they have a journey like like you had yourself. Well, and. And if I if I may, Christian Smith from Notre Dame just wrote a book or recently wrote a book um, talking about this and how that what happens is, is sociologically speaking, uh, Christians from the different sects or denominations tend to tribalize. Tend to one of the natural behaviors is to kind of protect your belief system by you know conglomerating around that belief system and then creating an us versus them, and and therefore it, it, it's a way of perpetuating that belief system because nobody within the camp is asking the questions that everyone outside of the camp is asking or no one's saying, well, that doesn't make sense because the way that you kind of keep peace in the family, right, is is not not to bring up uncle so-and-so did such and such, right? right. So it's the same in these denominations. So I think, you know, to their to their benefit or to their credit, to be generous, you know, I think just a lot of that, it, it doesn't happen because there's, you don't want to rock the boat. You don't want to, you know, we're in this together. Do we really want this whole edifice to come down? I mean, if we if we question this, it's kind of the it's the sacred cow. You don't you don't touch it. You don't you, you don't go there. It's, it makes me wonder, and I, I haven't read that gentleman's book, but it makes me wonder if one of the reasons we're seeing so many of this movement in the last fifty, sixty, seventy years is because one of the things that the great wars did is they put people together that otherwise wouldn't have been together. So all, all of a sudden, you have Methodists, Presbyterians, Baptists, Pentecostals fighting side by side. Mm. Uh, up in the front lines, and they're getting to know each other with Catholics and 
Episcopalians and, and all of a sudden the world has opened up in a wider way that wasn't really there before. But it cracks me up, Brent, when we think about all those little clicks, and yet Paul warned about clicks, right? <laughs> uh, what I mean is that each one of you says, I belong to Paul, I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Cephas, or I belong to Christ. You know, there's a, there was a start of denominationalism right in the beginning. Right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, these little clicks, and they don't break outside of the click, and already in that church, we see this the way the devil would love to crack us all up down the middle hmm. and divide us apart from the body of Christ. That's what's being fractured, Yes, is the body of Christ. Mm. Well, anyways, you had chosen as a, so much we could talk about, Brent, and, sure. and it's, uh, it's just a pleasure to have you here. Uh, but one of the scriptures you chose, you chose verses that had to do with Mary. Uh, so many you could have chosen, maybe just in general. Why did you choose verses for our discussion dealing with Mary? Well, you know, in the tradition I came from, Mary was... Uh, really non-existent, and that has a lot to do with the first passage of Scripture in Luke chapter 1, what our listeners might be used to being referred to as Mary's Song or the Canticle of Mary. Um, before Catholicism was ever on my radar, I ha- I was sitting here reading Luke chapter 1 and just in personal prayer and study and became shocked when I read verse 48, if I may. Would that be okay? Yes, why don't or, you go ahead and start. Sure, and it, and it says, you know, verse 46, And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has regarded the lowest state of his handmaiden. For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. And it was in that moment <laughs> that literally the, I, could, I, I knew the conviction of the Holy Spirit. I had a, you know, in my, I knew what that was, and I was convicted, hmm. and I repented. I remember really feeling compelled to say, "Lord, I'm sorry for ignoring your mother." Yeah. And and further, it was shocking to me that when you, if you, and if our, our listeners can can look in their own Bibles, they'll notice the way in which the song is set out. There's a liturgical quality. There's a. Yes to this particular passage. It doesn't read like the rest of the narrative, nor the rest of the dialogue that you might find in Scripture. It's set apart, just as if you look in Isaiah, you'll notice certain prophetic utterances, how they kind of, they're indented different. So there's a reason for that. And uh, and so in this case, I knew that this particular passage was prophetic in nature. She's she's talking about the future. Hmm. And, and the scary part of it was the future I wasn't a part of. <laughs> yeah, the... It, it, there are these hidden elements in the actual written word that can lose their emphasis if you're not recognizing that behind Scripture is liturgy. The reason we have a canon of Scripture mm. is because of liturgy. Mm. The bishops that gathered at the end of the 4th century decide, okay, we got all these books out here, and people are saying which books should be read. Which books are the inspired books to be read in liturgy. And that's why we have a canon. But on top of that, even before they're written down, the way that they're passed on was liturgy. Hmm. And so we see in this beautiful song that which God inspired Mary and her cousin Elizabeth. And then it's remembered and remembered. And when you, one of the things I notice is if you think about salvation history... Think about the significance of this moment, of what Mary is responding to. I mean, this is what Genesis wants. This is what the very beginning is had prefigured the, yep. the proto-evangelium, the that that moment when you know the Lord says that this woman is going to come, and her seed will crush the serpent's head. And this is when it happens. The stage is set. The lights are on, and the woman who was prophesied about from the beginning, has made it to the stage. The fullness of time, as St. Paul describes it, has has come. We are in the fullness of time, and she speaks. And we get this, and what's so interesting is we, who else would know what she was saying but her? So clearly she was saying this to the apostles, and they were attending to Mary. I mean, if if, if there's any evidence at all, really, the, the, the infancy narratives tell us that the apostles were were Marian. I mean, they were listening to Mary. Mary was a the chief advisor of the church from the beginning, and um, and 
And something that really actually recently struck me about this passage being in the church now is this concept of blessed in the Jewish mindset. You know, a lot of times as Christians today, we throw around the word blessed. You know, we just kind of bounce it around like a, you know, we, you know, we would we'd say it to anyone. You know, and I'm from the South, so people say bless your heart all the time. <laughs> you know, we say bless your bless his heart or bless his heart or her heart or whatever. But in Jewish in, in, in the temple, particularly the word blessing, the blessing was a, a liturgical function. It was something that was done within the liturgy, and it and it implied this concept of returning to God what He gave you. And I asked myself just recently, well, what was the blessing? Okay, Mary says, every generation will call me blessed. What's the blessing that God gave her? And I went up to verse 28, and, he, and the blessing the angel declares over her is, Hail, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. And I said, the rosary. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so it's, uh, it, it makes sense that, that's, that, that the blessing that we say in the Holy Rosary is, is in fact fulfilling this every generation. As Catholics, it's such a gift to the church. Um, to to be able to say those words, to be able to say those words and return to Mary the blessing that God bestowed upon her. That you know, all generations will call me blessed mm. or, or blessed. Blessed. Um, that is a key part of salvation history. Mm. And there have been a number of converts to the church, fairly high-level converts. What I mean by high-level, it's kind of strange to put that term, but, but well-educated, uh, like a bishop or, or someone like that, the, who have said that one of the key things that opened their heart to the church was recognizing, number one, how little Mary had made a place in their life before, and discovering how essential it was to having an authentic Christology to understand the place of Mary in salvation history. Without appreciating the place of Mary, the entire understanding of Christ's, his understanding of who he was and what he did loses its power. And that's kind of what it's being referred to. All generations will call me blessed in the sense that she has an essential part Mm. of our salvation. Not an accident, yeah, yeah. It's it's that was something in my journey that struck me is when you get to you get to Chalcedon the count the council and you uh, you've gone through Nicaea and so forth and we kind of have the Christology that's kind of formed and we now know that he's it's fully God fully man in one person hmm. and the next question is well wait a minute then who's Mary the mother of and we get in Ephesus the Theotokos, the mother of God, and this affirmation affirms his humanity. And ultimately, you know, I've talked to friends about this, as you take Mary away, it's the corpus leaves the cross because the body, the humanity, the very flesh and blood that brings us our salvation is Mary's flesh, ultimately that she gave to Christ um, in a unique way because we know she's, as the spouse of the Holy Spirit, she presented a particular, you know, she, she provided her very humanity for our salvation. And, um, you know, consequ- consequently, as Catholics, to to love Christ is to love Mary, and to love Mary is to love Christ. It's, it's sometimes I notice that, you know, friends that I have or people that I know, or even myself before, uh, when I wasn't Catholic, uh, people would be confused about Mary. They think it takes away from Christ. And, uh, you know, an authentic Marian devotion, authentic, will lead you into an, a deeper intimacy with Jesus Christ because it's through his humanity, as you and I both know, that we can participate in the divinity. So Mary draws us into uh, into Christ, into that humanity, and allows us to, to see God. That is an interesting common phenomenon, is that answer, that attention given to the saints or to Mary somehow take away from Jesus. Mm. And really what that comment uh, relates is an, um, a misunderstanding of our Lord, of his divinity. Uh, it's a projection onto Christ of how we understand human relationships. 
I mean, how, how we might feel if we're supposed to get the attention and all of a sudden our kids do or our mother does. And it, so we, we see things as divided up or divvied up or lessened. And that really uh, reveals an inadequate understanding of the divinity of our Lord Jesus as well as his, what it means that he's human and, and, and a perfect human. Uh, in other words, he's a human without sin. So his human will is different than ours, not different in humanity, but without sin. He sees things through a different eyes in a way than we do. I think a common experience, though, all Christians have, if, you've, if they're parents, that defies this, the myth you were just really describing. Um, part of it has to do with our sinfulness, and part of it I think it's a myth. It's a mythology that gets kind of bibbed into Protestant culture. Therefore, we yeah. just keep passing it on. But it's uh, it's that you know when I had my second child, I didn't let my oldest daughter know that now I can love you less. Sorry, <laughs> I can only give you fifty percent because I right. only got fifty. Yeah, well, you know, it's fifty percent to begin with because you know I love your mother, but now we're at thirty three percent. You know, I got four kids, so the, the last little one, sorry, sweetheart, you got about seventeen percent of daddy. It, it, the nature of love, you know, God is this overflow, this abundance, this growing. Your heart enlarges with that next child. It gets bigger. And I found that in the church, the saints, it's been incredible. And with every saint that I I, I start to develop a relationship with and understand, my heart grows larger. And it's that, I call it the filial love, that's a foreshadowing, a foretaste of the heavenly bliss that we'll experience. It's it's the beatific vision in the church. It's, It's the fact that you and I, Marcus, will be our love for each other. You know, and that, that sounds weird in this world today because we're so we, we don't understand love, but our love for each other as Christians will be intense. Will be that true communion, and uh, and so I've I found the Catholic doctrine, the Catholic, the Church's understanding of the saints to be, uh, you know, obviously consonant with Scripture and consonant with our with love, ultimately with with our common experience of love. Well, you you and me, Brent, we're fathers, and we hope our children not only do some of the things we do, but we hope they do them better. Mm. <laughs> and if we see our, our sons, like my sons, who do music, or, and, uh, and we see them doing it well, if we're good fathers, we not only rejoice in what they're doing, but there's a sense of real satisfaction because we see that others are appreciating them apart from us. If we're bad fathers, then we make it jealous. Like Herod in the Bible, or the the one that killed all his sons off so that he could have the power to make sure he had no threat from his sons. No. Jesus is the ultimate example. He wants us to love his sons and brothers, the saints, right? And his mother. I mean, that's what makes all the sense in the world. Taylor Marshall, who was on your show, he he has a term he's used, and I've kind of stolen it from a Christotelic, you know. All of these things are ordered to Christ. Yes. Um, they point us, they draw us into to Christ. Well, there's so many examples of from the Magnificat that uh, we see Mary accepting herself as a role model. That, in other words, she realizes that we will look to her as a model. And you know, his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. That didn't just, fear of God didn't just stop with the resurrection. And now that I'm once saved, always saved, as some would say, I have no need to fear God. No, from generation to generation, we're called to live in a reverent, surrendering relationship as she did. Mm. Whatever you would do unto me, she said, right? Mm. You know, since becoming Catholic, parts of this scripture, I mean, this one particular epiphany, uh, if you will, regarding her blessed, calling her blessed, um, if I think another thing I point out in verse 47, um, she rejoices in God, my Savior. And a lot of <laughs> Protestants will say, or, you know, those who are outside the church will say, you know, Mary needed a Savior, and she got saved subsequently. You know, she had to receive Christ, you know, for Credo Bab, you may have made a confession. Um, but here she's actually saying that in the past tense yes. that God had saved her. So in Scripture we have evidence uh, at least pointing towards the church's teaching on her immaculate conception. And, All right. And well, excellent. We'll just pause there for a second. I'll take a break. Thank you, Brent. I'm here today with Brent Stubbs. This is Marcus Grodi, your host. 
You're hearing us on EWTN, your global Catholic radio network. Get an insider's look at the latest information from EWTN. Sign up for WINGS, EWTN's weekly email newsletter. Get the latest information about live events, special features, and guests. Connect with EWTN on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. Just go to EWTN.com and click on the WINGS link to sign up. Don't miss a minute of all that's happening at EWTN. Get your WINGS today. Hi, this is Jerry Usher reminding you to listen to Vocation Boom Radio Saturday at 5 p.m. Eastern exclusively on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Each week I bring you dynamic interviews with bishops, priests, vocation directors, even seminarians and those who support them, all in an effort to assist the Holy Spirit in what is truly a vocation boom around the world. That's Vocation Boom Radio Saturdays at 5 p.m. Eastern only on EWTN Radio. CH Resources is excited to offer you Marcus Grody's latest book, Thoughts for the Journey Home. If you're not Catholic but are looking seriously at the Catholic Church, or if you've recently entered the Church, this book will provide you with wisdom and encouragement for the journey. And if you're a lifelong Catholic, it makes a great gift for family and friends you're hoping will come home. To order a copy, visit our website at chnetwork.org or call us at 1-800-664-5110. Don't forget to watch the Journey Home program with Marcus Grodi on EWTN. Each week, Marcus meets new guests who have journeyed to the Catholic faith from many backgrounds. Be challenged and encouraged as they witness to how their love for the truth of Jesus Christ has brought them into full communion with the Catholic Church. That's the Journey Home program on EWTN, live on Monday evenings at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, joined today by Brent Stubbs, former Pentecostal, and uh, has uh, done a significant amount of, of college and graduate studies in theology and philosophy, and he brings that to us today, um, and sharing some of the scriptures that, um, well, you, you see in a bit different way than you did before. <laughs> <laughs> some, some of them I like, to, I like to think that they actually had no place in my theology at all. And this next passage that we had talked about discussing actually falls under that category of it wasn't it, yeah. it, it it didn't even it wasn't at play at all. We didn't talk about it. It didn't you know it was just one of the I call it like a bad present from your relative. You keep it around just in case they show up. You know, just in case God comes back, you don't want to tell them that you cut out a piece of the Bible. <laughs> yeah, but you you don't do anything with it. Well, frankly, for many Christians, that's what the whole Book of Revelations is anyway. I mean, a mm. lot of people just don't know what to do. They may know the one about knocking at the door and and you know Jesus knocking on the door or a couple few verses, but uh, the whole aspect of Revelations for many is daunting, and how do I interpret it, uh, and when's it going to come true, and all those issues. But particularly when you you encounter the verses that seem to re- refer to Mary, or at least to a woman, well, how do they fit our Protestant theology? And that was tough. The, the, but you did choose chapter 11, verse 19 of Revelations. Let me read it, and then, uh, Brent, uh, I might ask you, yeah, well, maybe you've already answered the question. What did you do with this when you were a Pentecostal? But let me read it first. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple, and there were flashes of lightning, voices, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. You know, <laughs> we did a lot with Revelation in my tradition. You know, we were the rapture sure. people, okay. and uh, so it was— Sold a lot of books. We had the timelines on the wall. We had the, you know, I grew up, when I got married, my goal was to get married. I just wanted to be married before the rapture. And, uh, you know, and so, you know, we, we you know, I lived in that context. You know, that's a tough theology to drop behind you because you're so uh, inundated with that thinking that if you start wanting to break free from it, you're starting to wonder, you know, am I going to get in trouble here by breaking free from this thing? I mean. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, th- I think once I figured out it was a 19th century Late nineteenth century phenomenon, you know, it wasn't yep. really. Uh, it was a novelty to say the least. Yeah. I knew. Okay, I can ditch. I can ditch it, but um, it, it's still psychologically. You know, I mean, I can remember being eleven years old and waking up, and nobody was in the house that I was in, and 
thinking, oh my gosh, I've been left behind. <laughs> Almost started crying, ran around screaming for people, and they were just on the other side of the house and couldn't hear me. Oh, but, uh, you know, <laughs> it actually got, got a woke, I woke up to this really large, loud sound I thought was the trump of the Lord. <laughs> and it was just the alarm clock. <laughs> that's funny. But, I mean, it's... <laughs> it's I mean, that's... <laughs> if you're brought up in that theology... You can, it's understandable if you're in that theology. If you're not in it, then it just – to some it sounds ludicrous, but no. There are people that truly believe the depth of that. Absol- yeah. Absolutely. I mean within the Pentecostal world, it's it's a fairly certain certain thing, the, the whole idea of the rapture of the believers. Um, this this passage in, in particular uh, – well, first off, just glo- it was a total gloss. It was – you read through it. It was like a novel – and it was an unimportant part of the story that you just wanted to get through so you could get back to the juicy details, uh, you know, the, the good part, the narrative. It was filler. And uh, this is something that it really appeared to me while I was studying the church and trying to figure what was going on. Mm-hmm. Um, I realized, okay, what's, if, if heaven's opened in the New Testament after Christ's ascension and right. John's revelation of heaven, the Ark of the Covenant is on display, so to speak. Here we see... In heaven, the Santra of heaven mm-hmm. is this Ark of the Covenant. We have a couple options here. You can say that the Ark from the Old Temple is in heaven. That's kind of problematic <laughs> to say that we're, we're in the New Covenant. This is the this is you know that was a foreshadow, a type, a, a shadow of things to come. Well, of the reality. Well, this we're now talking about what's a reality, yeah. and. Well, well, I have to ask myself, what would be the new Ark of the Covenant? What was created by God to house the presence of God? You know, and John talks about the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld the glory of the Father. You know, and that's Jesus Christ, this yeah. glory that's revealed in, this, in the, you know, St. Paul, the fullness of time, this, just everything that happens here in salvation and Mary. She, and the early church fathers saw this too, as you know. Yes, right. They saw her. They were all they had. You know, we forget the church fathers really just had the Old Testament um, to look at, particularly in that first century. And you see how they're seeing these types and shadows in the Old Testament, and then showing how they're fulfilled in the New. And Mary is the Ark of the New Covenant, which is this passage and says in heaven she's on display, kind of as the centerpiece of uh, God's handiwork, and uh, that was. That was a tough one to swallow. I, I actually, this is a little thought I had. I said, I don't want to get to heaven and say, who's she? <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's the way it felt. I mean, I would have yeah. as a Protestant, if in fact she's in the middle of heaven on display and it's just, it's just you know, I, if I would get there you know, and see, I would, I would have thought, really, who is, it's not the heaven I expected. It's not the heaven I was thinking it was going to be. You know, it just crossed my mind. This is one of those things where I need to, almost want to say time out. I want to take a break because I'm going to go look at a book real quick, then we'll get back together. Because <laughs> one of my favorite books by C.S. Lewis was a book called The Great Divorce. And it's been years since I read it. It's got to be 20 years since I read that book, but it was still one of my favorite. I used to be very much into C.S. Lewis. Mm-hmm. But there we have a presentation of heaven by the main character who's at least in, in a purgatory, if not hell, but he's taking a bus ride to right. heaven, right? Mm-hmm. Remember that? Mm-hmm. But Ed, now that you mention it, I don't remember him putting Mary there. I don't remember no, no. C.S. Lewis having Mary in this experience of heaven. He had a woman who was praised because she was good to the poor. Right? I think in that right. story, a woman mm-hmm. who's being praised by everyone. And he, and he asked, well, she must have been someone great. No, she just gave to the poor. Right. So the point he was making was good. But yet there was no conscious idea that Mary ought to be there. It's like you said, you would arrive there and say, whoa, who's this? <laughs> right. And that, that, I mean, that's kind of not the point of Christianity is to be that very well surprised by your afterlife. I mean, <laughs> as we all became Christians is because of our sure hope in, in eternity, in this, in this you know, experience of God for eternity. And in this scripture, I honestly think there's no way around this, Marcus. I don't think there's any way to interpret this other than to say— that Mary's in heaven and she's has a very prominent place there. Um, I, you know, when you look at the commentaries, I think many of them either straight up gloss it or 
in practical preaching, I've heard people talk about it as maybe an Old Testament archetype, and then the you know there's a heavenly realm, and I've heard preachers try to do something with it, but <laughs> it doesn't really fit within the the arc of the gospel. Yeah. You know, when we think about the gospels, we as and, and the person of Jesus Christ, as our Holy Father loves to talk about him, seeing as that having that encounter with the person of Jesus Christ. As as the self revelation of God that we you know like unlike uh, you know Moses we can see the face of God in Jesus, the Ark of this Covenant is Mary, and um, but some might say well then well then why didn't John just say it? And, and I think that's actually the easiest answer question to answer, which is he's writing you know by by all accounts he's writing do- during the Diocletian persecution, which is the, one of the worst persecutions ever, and he's writing in a we look at Revelation and think it's some kind of innovation. This was a apocryphal tradition. Yeah. He's writing in a tradition that those at that time understood as a way to kind of codify uh, a message. Yeah. It was it was a way to kind of slip it underneath you know the the antagonistic culture at the time that was persecuting Christianity. So you wouldn't just say say yeah. something uh, point blank during a, a massive persecution of Christians and threaten you know. More Christians being killed. It was a uh, kind of the same, you know, same reason. A lot of times people say, "Well, why didn't uh, Pope was it Pius, you know, during uh, World yeah. War II? Why didn't he say as much?" Well, some of it, a lot of it, had to do with if he said something, every, point, every, like it, it would have led to more. Every time he being said killed. something, somebody was killed. I mean, that, that right. that's a difficult issue. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm of the theological in, uh, bent. There's mm-hmm. a number of ways of interpreting revelations, but I've particularly been drawn over the last many years to understand, and this was a, an understanding of the interpretation of Revelation that was common throughout the history of the church, and that is seeing that the majority of what is referred to in Revelations was completed at the destruction of Jerusalem. Right. It still points forward with an already not yet implication. So at the time that Revelation is being written, Jerusalem isn't, destroyed yet we, this is all kind of coming but it's in the most difficult time and but on top of that i mean think about it if we have a growing christians community that are just doing backflips and surrendering themselves even to martyrdom for our lord jesus if they knew where they could find the mother of jesus There would be pilgrimages. She would never have a day's rest. But instead, the rest of her life was really the model of the contemplative life that women dedicate their lives to. She became the ultimate contemplative. And the person who was assigned to guard her for the rest of her life was the man that wrote this book. Right, and ultimately (laughs) the only apostle who isn't martyred preserved by God's grace. It's, isn't it interesting, you know, the beginning of Jesus' ministry, Mary's there. The beginning of the church in the upper room. Yeah. And then, but she's quiet. You know, I mean, she's, she's the perfect, uh, I think Archbishop Fulton Sheen has talked many times about her as just the, obviously we know she's the, she's the greatest example of a Christian. And yeah. so, that, you know, if, if I might decrease so he might increase, she, she teaches us that in just how she kind of the rest of her life i mean that really mm. explains um the the silence for the rest of her life you either take the position that you and i probably took before and that was well she wasn't really that important that's why she was silent almost to the extent of saying that god just used her grabbed a woman used her as a channel for his son and then set her aside i mean literally that's almost how we at least i almost treated her i don't oh. know if you did the same well, yeah, you you had to, almost you a had surrogate to. womb. Oh, yeah, she was. Yeah. There we you know, go. Thanks, thanks for, you know, thanks. Next, I mean, and it was just. Yeah. yeah. Or the other hand, no, it was really her ultimate dedication to her Lord. Maybe she spent the rest of her life on her knees. You know, I mean, there she was, praying for the church, praying for the brethren, uh, in seclusion and and meditating on all. Let's take another break, Brett. Uh, and we'll come back because I know we had one other verse you wanted to look at, but we can still talk about this when we come back in just a moment. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, joined today by Brent Stubbs 
and you're hearing us on EWTN, your global Catholic radio network. The Coming Home Network International is a nonprofit Catholic lay apostolate dedicated to helping Protestant clergy and laity come home to the Catholic Church. It was founded by Marcus Grodi, the host of this program, as well as the Journey Home television program on EWTN. If you are on the journey and interested in learning more about the Coming Home Network International or know someone who's thinking of becoming Catholic, please visit our website, www.chnetwork.org, or contact us at one 800 664 Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, joined today by Brent Stubbs. We, we've looked at a number of verses dealing with Mary, Brent, that, that really, in a way, confront the way you did or didn't appreciate Mary in your pre, pre-Catholic life. Sure. Um, but... Another one that I think is a key one that you brought up, uh, we were talking about there during the break, is John twenty twenty one through twenty three, in which really deals with the uh, uh, the uh, the gift of the sacrament of confession that Jesus gives to his hand chosen apostles. And you were asking me during the break, what did I do with this with this when I was a Presbyterian pastor? And I honestly cannot remember because I don't think I dealt with this passage at all, or. I, at seminary, Gordon Conwell. Um, and as I'm thinking about the reason it's difficult is my particular understanding of sin was based on my understanding of 1 John chapter 1, 9. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. I took that verse from 1 John as something every individual Christian could do for themselves. It wasn't technically confession, it was just say you're sorry to Jesus, and then, but because I believed in once saved, always saved. That's why this passage, on a number of levels, didn't make sense to me. Now, let me read it, and then you go ahead and comment on it. And this is the end of chapter twenty in John. Toward you, Jesus said to them again, "Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I send you." And when he said this, he breathed on them. And said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. And, and Brent, I just remembered the only thing I did with this passage. Because the only thing that jumped out at me was the red flag of how do I connect this with Pentecost. That was the only thing that I worried about. They just received the Holy Spirit but then they got it in Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. What was the difference? And, and I think that signals to the unique uh, gift that's being given here, uh, the Holy Spirit as the general, you know, as the, you know, the, the language of being ge- generally motioning at the idea that there's a gift, that there's something being given. Yeah. And, you know, Jesus said, if you, re- if you receive me, you know, I was sent by the Father. If you receive me, you, if, you, if you receive the Father, you know, yeah. you accept the Father, if you accept me. And and now he's sending uh, his apostles, and he's taught. We know in uh, we, we know that uh, the paraplegic who came to him, uh, we know that he taught that the greatest miracle is to be able to forgive sins. <laughs> and the Pharisees were astounded by this that someone, a, a man, could claim to forgive sins. And he says, you know, what's greater to to uh, say your sins be forgiven you, or you know, pick up your bed and walk? And it was implied that obviously that. You know, one heals the physical body, one heals the soul. And now he's giving to his apostles here in John uh, this same gift of bestowing upon them uh, those sins that you retain will be retained and those sins that you forgive will be forgiven. I think what was really s- disturbing hmm. is when you look in the commentary tradition in Protestantism, whether it's Matthew, uh, Geneva Study Bible, Calvin's personal commentary, um, you know, and anyone who's listening to this, yeah. just go. You, all the commentaries are online for free. Plug in this passage and look at what's said by different Protestant commentaries. They're glosses at best. Some of the theories are that the this was, uh, you know, it falls within the cessationist idea that okay, the apostles had it, but actually Wesley said they had it but never used it. John Wesley, 
had it, never used it, um, which is which is interesting. That's it was bizarre. like it was like a big gotcha. It was like Jesus was like you know here's something, but you're not going to really use it. But uh, hey, isn't this? It's was that because he great. was trying to reinstate it? You know what I mean? I mean, the reason I say that is we we have the 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 gift of it here, but we don't have documentation as to whether they used it or not. You know what I'm saying? Right. Obviously, we don't. Uh, you know. So he would say, uh, kind of like the 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 message of silence. But it's just bizarre, anyways. I mean, that, just, it, that, it, that he would say that it's bizarre. It, it, it that was an that was the most bizarre one I had read. I mean, <laughs> um, some of the <laughs> honestly, I I can't remember if it was Calvin or if it was uh, just if it was Matthew Henry. But one one of those two, and I've gotten confused in my mind. But for the purpose of this, they basically said that. You know, more or less, this was a gift to forgive people who offended them. Basically, just the ability to forgive in general. <laughs> and what I find so so telling in that, in the commentary tradition, is that it, they're all glosses. They really don't. I yeah. mean, you want to talk about plain reading of Scripture. I mean, you hand this passage to a 10-year-old, they're going to get it. Yeah. I mean, this is clearly that receive, you know, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain, they are retained. The reason why the whole idea of you know, well, I'm giving you the power to forgive people is false, is the second clause, which is the sins you retain will be retained. <laughs> well, that that would have nothing to do with my ability to individually forgive you. You know, Marcus, you could offend me, and I could say, you know, I forgive Marcus. But he's not saying that. He's saying, not only can I forgive you, but Marcus, you could do something to me, and I could say, you're not forgiven. Whoa. <laughs> and again, I, th- I think this comes which back Which seems to-, to run contrary to that. One statement when Peter comes to Jesus and says, how many times must I forgive a brother? And Jesus says, 70 times 7, which is that kind of numerical, symbolic thing, meaning infinite. Right. You never have a reason not to forgive someone. Well, wait a second. Now Jesus is saying, but there's maybe times when you're going to not forgive someone, and you're going to say, no, your sins are retained. seems to run contrary to what Jesus said earlier. But the context is different. I mean, the... uh, well, yeah, forgiveness with for, forgiveness comes contrition, comes repentance. So if there isn't repentance, and that was something that was amazing for me coming into the church, the sacrament of confession has been so powerful in my life and my wife's life um, in transforming us. In because you know one of the things that God knows, He knows we're not angels. We can fool ourselves. We can think we're sorry when we're not. We can hide things, and confession forces us to really, you know. Inspection. We're supposed to do an examination of conscience. You know, that was something that my wife and I were amazed. When you don't do that, yeah. you, you there's so many sins that you allow to not be sins anymore. You know, it's my struggle. It's my difficulty. That's my this or my that or my pet, yeah. my pet thing or whatever. You know, and and ultimately, you know, if God's holy and He's who He says He is, we should be sorry for our sins if they're sins. Which I think when I look at this passage, Brent, it to me it. It really underlines why, as a Catholic, you go to the Bible through the eyes of the church. To understand this fully, we should have open before us the catechism that describes the priest's authority to forgive sins. Because you and I, as Christian brothers, what Jesus is telling me is that there really shouldn't be anything that you could do to me that I shouldn't forgive. Same and vice versa, because of Christ dying for us, you know, of, uh, forgive me my sins, you know, as, as it says in the, in the Lord's Prayer. We forgive as we've been forgiven. And so even a priest, as a man, has a responsibility to forgive every person right. that's ever hurt him. But in his unique position as the altar Christus, now there's a little difference. That's what's happening here. Right. This isn't just the priest forgiving people that's hurt him. He is has this unique gift or the gift of the Holy Spirit to be speaking for God. Right. I mean, sacred scripture, apart from the sacred tradition and the magisterium of the church, uh, what I've you know what I've noticed, even sacred tradition and sacred scripture without the church can be just as yeah. you know fallacious. I mean, we need the church, the ground and pillar of truth, to to look at. You know, being guided by the Holy Spirit with the gift of you know infallibility in its you know pronouncements and its dogmatic promulgations to help us 
to know, give a context for these verses, give a context for, you know, the, the practice of the faith, living out of the faith. Um, I, you know, St. Paul motions at it in Ephesians when he says that we comprehend the love of God with all the saints in the assembly. Uh, you know, <laughs> right. so we never, you know, if, if God is the truth and he's love, then ultimately you can't comprehend the word of God without the saints, the church. And in you know without the you know the doctors of the church the catechism of the church, and in the assembly in the church you know being connected to Mother Church, and that's been so wonderful. My wife and I are so happy to be able to pass this faith off to our children. Um, the safety of Mother Church, you know, no, you know Saint, Saint Peter's bark, the, the you know the the ark that will you know has has been t- tested tested in true two thousand years. Uh-huh. Well, in Acts chapter 2, when they're gathered, all those first converts, and uh, there's four things that characterize their gathering, not just one, two, or three. It isn't just prayer. It isn't just the coffee and donuts, the fellowship, <laughs> which is not what that word means in, in that context, nor the breaking of bread, which the context there is, is of course, the, is the Eucharist, but the listening to the apostolic teaching, the passing on of the deposit of faith. But it isn't merely the passing on the deposit of faith. It's in the context of the fellowship, in the context of the sacraments, in the context of mm. the prayer. I mean, there we see the kind of the, the proto-catechism. We see all aspects of catechism, worship, life in Christ, prayer, and the teaching of the church is all right there mm. in Acts chapter 2. Well, Fr- Brent, thanks for joining us. We've got another minute and a half. What would you like to say to our, our, our guests here about the importance of reading Scripture in the eyes of the church? Well, you, you know, a you know the Lord has given us sacred scripture it's as a gift to the church. Um, if you notice in the Gospels, though, uh, Jesus not one time asked anyone to write anything down. Now that doesn't impugn scripture in any way, but it tells you that the foundation of the church and the way in which the church would exist in perpetuity from those first centuries was not scripture. Yeah. It wasn't the foundation of the church. It was the apostolic teaching authority of of those who he called and those who we just looked at in scripture he sent and i would just encourage anyone who's listening now to to attend their ear to wisdom as as the psalmist says and or as 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 uh, you know solomon says in the proverbs attend your ear lend your ear to wisdom mother church can teach you and open the scriptures to you the holy spirit can illuminate you in a safe way coming from my tradition there were so many ways you could go astray so many places you could make. You could be a heretic every weekend if you wanted to. Um, but in the church, it's safe, and you're on a firm foundation. So. All right, Brent. Thanks a lot. Brent Stubbs, appreciate you joining us. What's that website again? Uh, com. Check it out. He's got a blog there, and, and uh, he's got a lot of great things to say about our walk with Christ. Thanks, Brett. And thank you for joining thank us you. in this program. Hope it's been an encouragement to you. God bless. See you again next week.